I would shake you, shake all of your hands and give you hugs, but uh, I guess there'll be plenty of time for that later. That's an awkward silence, Chris. That's how you do it. So Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1, talking about our heritage in Christ. We have such a rich heritage through Christ's coming. I was thinking of Job's statement where he said, should we receive good from God and not evil? The idea being that if we're going to receive good things from God, we have to be willing to receive difficult things as well. And it would be foolish to receive one and to refuse the other. And in this case, he was speaking of he had, he had wealth and health and many of the things that we value. And God took them away in a stroke. He allowed the devil to do that to him. But I think we can do the opposite, where God has chastened us, he has corrected us, but we can refuse the comfort and the good that he has for us. It's like we, we, need to, we feel the need to kind of beat ourselves up over things that he has revealed to us, but he wants us to move on and to come into his presence. Uh, like, like Jacob, it says he refused people when they saw him grieving over the loss of Joseph. They, they rose to comfort him, but he, he refused their comfort. And sometimes I find I can be that way, where, sure, I want the comfort of God, but there's something in me that just says, no, I either don't deserve it or I don't want it. But God, he is so good to us, and we'll see through this passage that he has so much sweetness for our souls, so much vitality, goodness, and we have a heritage in him that we can rejoice in. It's a good challenge to be um, to have put upon us the need to repent and to meet that challenge. But it's also a good challenge after we have repented to say, have you experienced the joy of the Lord? Have you, has, has repentance brought you to a place of joy where you're now rejoicing in the Lord who's forgiven you and who's washed you and who's given you a new start and who has plans for you? So I encourage you, what, what, which one of those, I don't know, is, is meaningful for you at the moment, but to receive the comfort of the Lord and also to take that challenge when we have sinned to repent. God's people in this passage, they had felt forgotten by God, forsaken by him. The Babylonians had come and they had ravaged Jerusalem. They had gone into captivity and they felt forgotten. They felt forsaken, but they were still the apple of God's eye. He still had plans for them. He loved them. He would restore them. And the immediate context of the passage is for Israel, but we can also apply them to ourselves. We know that God, he governs the nations, but he also cares for individuals. We see that with Jesus, don't we? It would have been very uh, efficient for him to walk into a town and say, oh, there's a lot of sick people here. You're all healed. And then they could all be healed at once. And then on to the next place. But no, he wanted to touch each one. He wanted to speak them. He wanted to hold the children in his arms and bless them. He was always looking for the individual to touch. And the question is, do you want a touch from Jesus today? Are you willing to be touched by him? Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to minister to you. Do you believe he can touch you today, wherever you may be? Let's thank him and praise him. Father, thank you for your word, that it's so powerful, that it cuts through our defenses. It reveals the attitudes 
in our hearts, our great need, our great sin. Lord, and thank you that you have sent Jesus to be a Savior, to redeem us from the curse, to give us such exceedingly great and precious promises that we can walk in. I pray, Lord, that we would not just repent, but we would also rejoice. We wouldn't just be corrected by you, but we'd walk in the right way, where you have led us. And I pray, Lord, that we would unite as one, fill with your spirit today, that we might hear what you're saying to each one and praise you, worship you, and be thankful for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. It's a really a neat passage. It says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. In the previous passage, God had promised the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who would die for the sins of the world. It said he would sprinkle many nations. And in light of this promise, God tells the barren to sing. He says, you who have never had children, sing to the Lord, rejoice in him. And when you want children and you can't have them, for whatever reason, it's devastating, it's painful. And in the Jewish culture, there was a a stigma attached to that because a fruitful womb was seen as a blessing from the Lord. And so if you were barren, there would be whispering, there was gossip, and there was a feeling of inadequacy, there was a feeling of powerlessness, like you can't change your situation no matter what you try, there's nothing you can do. The clock is ticking, having that window uh, shrinking by the day. It was just something that would weigh on your mind. It was a constant source of stress and worry. But here he speaks to the barren. He says, sing, because you're going to have more children than those who are married. And so this, this is a desolate woman. This is someone who's alone. This is someone who does not even have a man. And yet he says, sing, because you're going to have kids. Don't spare uh, fabric or rope. Make your tent larger. Strengthen those stakes. Expand your borders because I'm going to give you children. The one who was once barren, God would cause to give birth, like Sarah. right? She had one son. But through Isaac, the promise of God came. The son of promise. What's not possible with men is possible with God. You think of Mary, right? The angel came to her and says, you're going to give birth to a son. She's like, how can I? I've never been with a man. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will give birth to a son. You'll call his name Jesus, right? God is able to do things like that. The impossible situation, it's possible with him. Now, Paul, he quotes this passage that we just read in Galatians 4, 26 through 28. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So we Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, those who have received Christ, we are now children of God. We are the true Jews, 
through faith in God. And to the people that God was speaking, it didn't seem possible. They were mourning the loss of their children through the war with the Babylonians. They had lost their children in the siege. They had seen them waste away day by day. They had seen their husband perish on the battlefield, and yet God is saying, sing, be glad, because I'm going to bring you increase. We are those children of promise. God brings children from unexpected places. I love the story of Gladys Aylward, who is, uh, she was called the little woman that God used who came out of the UK and she went, she came out of England and went to China. She actually sold her hope chest to afford the fair. And so she went as a single woman into China and she just helped out at the mule inn for a while. Over the passage of time, God brought little children to her. One she purchased, her mother was selling the child, she bought the child, and that was the first of many, uh, over 80 children that she adopted and brought out of the country. I don't know how many she legally adopted, but at least the first one she did purchase. Uh, and she saved many children alive at the onset of World War. Um, I think it was World War II. Yes, World War II. So she was desolate. She felt very alone. She didn't even have a, a, a male chauffeur at times to walk around. And yet God gave her many children. I have two children. She had tons, many children. And so God's able to do this thing, to bring you out of one place, put you in another country, and give you uh, physical children, spiritual children. The Israelites were contemplating survival and God was promising exponential increase. That's wild. He just totally went outside the square. We can feel powerless and unable. We can feel like mourning our lack. But God is able to perform all that he's promised. Verse 4 of Isaiah 54. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. In a shameful time, in a time when people were afraid, God said, do not fear. And he compared the nation of Israel to a bride who had been put away from her husband, put away for her adulteries, disgraced. She was like, it says here, a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, a wife refused. She had refused to walk in God's way, and so God had distanced himself from her. But God would redeem her, redeem her from the shame and the grief, even though she had sinned. And it said that she would forget the shame and reproach of widowhood. So there would be a point where those mistakes and the pain that it brought her, it would be forgotten. It would not be remembered any longer. It says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So there seemed no hope of re restoration. There was nothing Israel could do to redeem itself, but God would redeem. 
Now, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a young person. This passage is for you if you're in Christ. Because there's passages of Scripture that compare the church to the bride of Christ. And sometimes we've all done things that we we know are indefensible. We wish we could take back shameful things that have damaged our relationship with God and ruined our Christian witness to others. But our Maker, our Redeemer, He is the creator of the earth. He's the one who has called us to himself. We can feel grieved and forsaken and forgotten. We can feel refused, but know that God's will is to redeem and restore us to himself. God has not forgotten you. God has not forsaken you. Men will forget you. Men will forsake you, but God won't because he is your maker. He's as cl- his, his relationship with us is like a spouse with that level, uh, even greater level of intimacy and closeness where he's not going to forget. He's like, oh, what's your name again? You know, if he's asked you to marry him and he can't even remember your name, that would be pretty embarrassing. Um, through Jesus, we're accepted. We're not forgotten. Jesus says in John 6, 35 through 37, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So when we come to Jesus, he won't cast us out. He won't cast us aside. I find in this life I am hungry and I am thirsty. And I often notice that when I'm trying to satisfy myself with things that aren't Christ or of Christ. Now, speaking of acceptance, where it says, you know, I will not cast out the one who comes to me. I'm reminded of Queen Esther. She was appearing, uh, you remember perhaps the story that Haman, uh, one of the rulers of the land, had made a decree using the king's signet ring that the Jewish people were to be annihilated. They were to be destroyed and plundered. And that was the law. The law was, you die. <laughs> it was not a good law if you were a Jew. Esther was a Jew, but her, uh, what was it, cousin Mordecai, he told her, you know, what if God has raised you up for a time such as this, that you would go before the king, who was also her husband? And the, the sticking point, though, was according to the law of the Medes and Persians, if you appeared before the king and he had not summoned you, you were to be executed. You were going to die, except if he saw you and he had favor upon you and held out the scepter. So if he does nothing, you die, period, unless he summoned you. So you're going to your death unless he has favor on you. So she, in light of this, though he is her husband, he's also a king, he has this great power and this law. She says, everyone, all the Jews in Shushan, let's fast for three days. Me and my maidens will as well. I will wear my robes, I'll go in there, and if I perish, I perish. And so the day comes. She goes in before the king. And it says uh, in Esther Five verse 2, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. 
And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now, put yourself in her shoes. You've put, you were, she was chosen, remember? She was chosen out of all the ladies of the land to be queen. She had gone through that beauty pageant thing and had been prepared for this moment. The king had chosen her, but she still wasn't really confident to do it because of the law. And so she went before the king wearing her royal robes and she stood in the court and it says the king saw her and he had favor on her. And he extended the scepter to her. But she did something as well. It says she comes up and touched it. She received that favor from the king. And if Esther should find favor before her husband, who was a heathen king, won't we find favor before our loving God who has invited us into his presence? He has called us to appear before him. He has freed us from the power of the law. And he has said, come unto me if you're weary, if you're weighed down, I will give you rest. He's already given us that favor. We don't have to earn it. And we're wearing the the robes of righteousness that Jesus has. He is made for us and given to us. Queen Esther hadn't been called before the king for 30 days, but God calls to you right now. He says, won't you come? He says to you, what is your request? Forsaken and grieved? Ask me anything. He doesn't just give us up to half of the kingdom. That was just a term of phrase to say, you know, I've got a lot to give. Ask me anything. You know, it shall be given to you. He's saying, uh, he, he he offers himself. That's what God offers. He offers an eternal kingdom with him forever. I mean, the stakes are glorious as sinners saved by the grace of God. We are accepted in Christ because he cannot, will not deny himself. Back to Isaiah 54, 7. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now to Jews mourning the desolation of Jerusalem, the prospect of 70 years in captivity, that's pretty heavy for your sins, 70 years. If that was a jail sentence, that would be basically multiple life sentences. And yet he says, I've only forsook you for a mere moment, for for a fraction of a second, just for a moment. You're still my chosen people. You're still beloved of me. I step, God stepped back from that relationship. He allowed his people to be scattered. He allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and plundered. But he says, with great mercies, I will gather you. A little wrath hid his face from them for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, he would show his love to them. He was, after all, their redeemer. He was their next of kin, their kinsman redeemer. And he would fulfill the obligation of that role. Now, this passage, it dispels two common misunderstandings. The first is that as children of God, we could not possibly experience any wrath from God. It says, I've given you a little wrath. It's like he he doled it out gently. It's kind of like when, uh, as a parent, you have a paddle and there's been willful disobedience 
and it's time to administer that spanking, you're not going to use your full force. You're not just going to hit just anywhere. It's going to be calculated and careful without anger. Now, see, God, it's interesting because he can be angry without sinning. It's very hard for me to be angry without sin. If I am angry and I remain angry, there's likely something in me that's sinful. Uh, like anger stirs up a lot of other sin in me. Like it, it clouds the water, so to speak, where, you know, you can say, well, it's righteous indignation, but you go, well, how righteous is it really? I mean, God righteous or like man righteous? Uh, and man's righteousness we know is nothing with God. So God, he's angry always without sin. The second point is God's promise to never leave us or forsake us is conditional on our faithfulness to him. He will allow us to reap what we've sown. If we have forsaken him for a moment, he will forsake us. He will allow us to be apart from him. But with everlasting mercy, he will draw us to himself. With everlasting kindness, he will prove his love yet again. He will always act consistently with his character. We, we can trust the Lord when we obey. We can count on his guidance, protection continually. He's never going to leave or forsake us. Now, if we choose to leave or forsake him for a moment, we may find ourselves outside the place of his protection. Now, consider, if you could turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31, 7 and 8, when Moses is calling Joshua, and it was really God's call upon Joshua, to lead God's people into the land of promise. And Joshua was afraid. It was a big task. There were a lot of people. There were many enemies. The obstacles were great. And he had a bit of trepidation about this because Moses was a great man. Who could fill those shoes? And who can lead a million people or so? Um, I, man, it's... You think you got five people on your team. That could be a little bit of a difficulty. But you're talking a nation of people. Like, all right, you're going to be the mediator. It's like, whoa, that is pretty heavy. But he could have confidence in God that as he obeyed God in this, God would not leave him. God would not forsake him. So Deuteronomy 31, verse 7. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not be, do not fear nor be dismayed. Even when we make mistakes, as Joshua did, God won't forget us. He won't leave us or forsake us. So we can rejoice in that, can't we? Isaiah 54, verse 9. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. God is the one who has mercy on us. Who else has mercy on us? God caused a great flood in the days of Noah to cover the whole earth. The world that before existed was destroyed by this flood because of the sin and the violence that was in the earth. 
It was globally devastating, but there was an end to it. It was great destruction, global destruction, but it had an end. A day came when the ark came to rest on Ararat. The waters began to recede. The earth began to dry out. And as the waters receded and Noah came out, God made a covenant with him in all flesh. Through that rainbow in the sky, it was his sign. It said, I put my bow in the heavens so that you know that I'll never again destroy the earth with water again. I'll never flood the earth. I'll never do this sort of catastrophic damage with water that I've done. You can count on that. It's interesting, too, that the the rainbow doesn't come usually before the rain. It's typically after the rain. So he says, remember my promise. See, I was faithful. You're you're alive to see my rainbow. I mean, God, uh, there have been floods, but nothing like in the days of Noah, right? Where the whole earth, the tops of every mountain was covered. That's never happened since, and it won't happen again. The rainbow is a sign of that. Now, God had done a similar thing in the just catastrophic judgment that had come upon his people for their idolatry and sin. He had allowed Samaria to fall, the northern kingdom. He caused Jerusalem to be destroyed, the temple to be thrown down, everyone to be uprooted and to be brought into captivity. And he says, the judgment that you've received, this little wrath, this little forsaking, it's like that. I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to allow to have happen what has happened. Now, the Jews have suffered other things, and Christians have also suffered. Um, The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. There's the Holocaust of the Second World War. But despite the suffering, God has never forsaken the Jewish people. He has never forsaken his people who are called by his name. He has always shown mercy to us. And it says, For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Notice that it says mountains and hills will be removed. So we're talking cataclysmic problems. We're talking difficulties. God would allow enemies to remain, and yet God would still have mercy on his people. His covenant, his kindness would not depart. And it's a covenant of peace. He's given us peace through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. We can have peace with God by grace through faith in Christ when we repent and trust in him. When our lives are torn apart, when we feel like we're forsaken and no one understands, God is still merciful. He has not forsaken you. Looking to my circumstances, looking to my feelings, It can cause me to doubt God's mercy and kindness, but when I look to God and his character and his promises, I realize that he is still merciful. His covenant that he's made through Christ is still standing, and it will forever. Great is God's faithfulness. Now, this is a a key passage here. Isaiah 54, 11. O you afflicted one, Tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. Will you receive this today, O afflicted one? I don't know that I've ever been tempest-tossed, per se, but I know that just being out in the ocean for any amount of time is enough to make me a bit crook. 
right? I started getting a bit ill. I remember a few times I was seeing double and triple. My head was just pounding. Uh, just see, there, there's really few things that I've experienced worse than seasickness because once you're 160 Ks out to sea, you can't make it stop and there's nowhere you can go. You're just kind of stuck there being sick and you're like, get me off this ship. Get me out of here. Where are you going to go? You know, it's like eight to ten hours of drive time. And once you get moving, it's a little bit better. But I think about the the disciples, right? These are seasoned fishermen, and this storm came up on the Galilee, and Jesus is asleep. Meanwhile, his disciples are thinking they're going to die, and they're screaming at him, Wake up, Jesus! Don't you care that we're perishing? We're dying here. Like our lives are in the balance. And Jesus just wakes up and stills the storm with his words. Just his word. That was it. And they're like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And he says to people here who who had lost everything, people who felt powerless, they were like that barren woman who was just hopeless, no prospects. And he says, O afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, I will provide for all your needs. You're, you're not in the market for a home. You, you're like renting permanently. Well, I have something set aside from you with precious stones building the foundation. I mean, who, who thinks of putting diamonds in the concrete mix? Anyone here ever had their own house built? You know, you get to choose the doorknobs and the countertops and the colors and everything. You're like, yeah, I'd like a lot of diamond in the in the foundation. You know, I want it strong. And they're like, what? Ridiculous, right? Uh, I'd like a, a few towers in my house uh, out of rubies. Hmm? That, that's pretty expensive. And And I want a foundation of sapphire. You know, the gate's crystal. Like all these ridiculously ornate and expensive things. And God's like, I have this prepared for you. This is what, you're not in the market for a house. You're not even thinking about owning something, but this is what I have reserved for you. I mean, who could afford something like that? They didn't deserve nice things, but God had things for them beyond their wildest dreams. You might say, well, if this is literal, it must be heaven. Because I, the last time I cut my concrete, I didn't see any diamonds in there. You know, I, I don't, my, my fireplace is certainly not made out of, uh, sapphire or rubies. And it's correct. The literal fulfillment of these is in heaven. But I want you to turn to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. If this is speaking of heaven, which the literal fulfillment would be, Understand there's a principle here at work. And spiritually, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. So if it's about heaven, this is for you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So in a spiritual sense, the promises of heaven, they were Paul's as he wrote this letter, and they're for us as well. The Holy Spirit, he lives within us much more precious than diamonds or rubies or emeralds. When we place a value on things, it's often because what we can get for it when we want to get rid of it. We think resale value, right? That's something that comes into the picture. We're like, well, if I'm going to put all this money out, what can I get out of it later when I want to move on? Now, that doesn't apply when we're talking about God, right? Because it's not about reselling it, trying to get the most value for money. What he's given us is beyond price. You could not buy this. You could not possibly maintain this. And yet God gives us himself. He gives us a foundation, the the cornerstone of Jesus Christ that's built on something much more valuable than gold, silver, or anything that we value. And we value it because it's worth money. Interesting, God says you can't serve both God and money because we find our security in those things. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 6 and 7. Because God places different values on things than we do. This is an important point to tie in. God is speaking through Peter of this heavenly inheritance that we have as Christians. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purity of gold is proved and refined in the fire, in the furnace. And it reveals if our faith is genuine. So if you're going through the fiery trial and you're totally waylaid by doubts and cares and worries and you have no comfort and no peace and no rest and no hope, it should, it is a signal to you that your faith is not genuine in Christ. And this is more precious, this testing, than the gold that perishes because we're talking about eternity here. Wouldn't it be good to go through that trial? Wouldn't you say it would be among the best thing that's happened to you if the trial revealed to you that your faith was not genuine and you needed to repent and be born again and enter into this eternal covenant with God that you knew about but you hadn't really entered into? He says that's more valuable than gold. Now, we don't like the fiery trial, do we? We go, oh, oh boy, I don't value that. Well, that's what God values because he's proving the genuineness of your faith. He wants you to know the truth about yourself. The things he knows about you, he wants you to know too. And he wants you to admit it so he can be with you. And so you can be together forever. God is a redeemer. That's what he does. That's who he is. And I praise him for that. Isaiah 54, 13 All your children, now remember, talking to the barren, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. God speaking to people who had lost their children through starvation and war, yet God would provide them children who had been taught by God. And they would have peace without terror 
without fear. It will be a beautiful day when fear and terror are a thing of the past, when they don't even come into mind anymore because of the security we have in Christ, when he sets up his kingdom in the millennium and into eternity. And that's the peace that we can have in our hearts today. We don't need to wait for heaven to experience the peace of God that he offers us. Now, verse 15, it says that there will still be enemies. Oh, surely they'll assemble. They'll come against you. They'll speak against you. You'll be slandered. You know, there will be conflict. People who desired their hurt or destruction. But for the people established in his righteousness and peace, they wouldn't fall. He says, those people who assemble against you, they're going to fall. They won't be able to stand against you. Verse 16, Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. God has given people the knowledge and skill to dig ore out of the earth, to use fire, to work metal into useful shapes, into tools, and that it's the intense heat of the fire that makes the iron or steel malleable so that they can form it into the design that the blacksmith has. And God had raised up King Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to fulfill God's purposes, to be that fiery trial which would refine his people and purify them from their idolatry, and to reestablish his connection with them. Because they were all about talking about God and worshiping God, but it was so polluted with the, the adulteries and the sins of the land. Talks about creating the spoiler to destroy. When Satan sinned, God didn't send him immediately to the pit. He didn't bind him in chains. He's allowed to be like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, right? We see him going before God and talking about Job. He'd been walking around the earth, checking things out, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him, huh? He's he's righteous, like he loves me. And Satan, we see, he entered Judas Iscariot on the night Jesus was betrayed and caused that betrayal. He was part of that. Now, Satan's scheme to assassinate the Son of God was successful, but God redeemed it for good, not just for Christ, that it brought his glorification forever, but salvation to everyone who believes. So the devil intended something for bad, for wickedness, and yet what did God do? He made it good. So it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing but God redeemed it for good. It's like uh, Joseph. Joseph was a young man who was sold into slavery by his brothers. They wanted to kill him, but there was his older brother's like, oh, come on, guys, we can't kill him. We'll just sell him. We'll make a few bucks and just be rid of him. Uh, and they took his coat and they doused it in blood and, and ripped it up so it looked like he had been eaten by a wild beast. And meanwhile, Joseph, he, he goes into Egypt and and he gets accused of rape, and he's put in a prison, and he's there for years, and God brings him out of that and puts him as second in command. Now, his brothers hated Joseph. They did an evil thing, and yet what they meant for evil, God meant for good, because in them doing that, God used Joseph 
to save their lives and the lives of their families, the lives of their father, the life of everyone in Egypt and the surrounding nations. And you go, whoa, how does that happen? How do you have something that's meant for evil? It was evil, totally depraved, and yet God used it for good. God's able to do that. He maintains the ability and right to make a bad thing and make it good. It didn't mean it was a good thing. Like, oh man, it's so good that we sold him into slavery. That was, that was our best decision ever. Well, let's find someone else to sell. No, that's not the point. The point is God redeemed that bad thing. So it was a bad thing. Everything about it was bad, yet God meant it for good. And I think we can all look at our lives and say, well, there's some bad things that have happened. There's some bad things I have done. Doesn't mean that it was the best thing we ever did because God redeemed it. But we realize that it's God who's the redeemer. He's the one who saves. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, and 7, it says that Satan would not have crucified Jesus if he had known the good that God would bring out of it. The princes of darkness, when they all gathered around and they said, what are we going to do? Let's kill him. Everyone say, aye, aye. All right, let's do it. If they had known the salvation that God would bring out of that act, they would never have done that. They'd have gone about it a different way. But God is hes so wise. He's able to do things. And in our minds, we, we feel like, oh, you know, it's hopeless. And we feel helpless. And we feel like, well, how can we redeem the situation? You can't redeem the situation. God can. God can redeem it. He's able to do this. We may be, feel left out, but we are loved. We may be weak, but in weakness we find strength. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's Word. He's able to speak to us. Love verse 17 where it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. So what is our heritage as children of God? Well, we have security and salvation in Christ. Even if Satan and his high-ranking demons have us in their sights, we have strength in Jesus Christ. We have security. No weapon, no scheme that's been formed against us can prosper. The persecution of the early church to squash the gospel and to contain it, only spread it like wildfire so that the whole world was turned upside down. Our heritage is also to condemn every tongue which rises against us in judgment. You know, that tongue can be wagging inside your own head. Think, oh man, I am such a failure. I am so worthless. I'm such an idiot. And just yesterday I had some difficult moments, I'll just say where that tongue was wagging, and I was angry. I was very angry. But it's like, you know, I don't have to listen to that. I condemn that tone. I condemn those words because I am a child of God. I have been bought with a price. I am loved. I'm not going to even talk to you anymore. Like, be quiet. I condemn that speech. And wow, what a difference it makes. We don't have to listen to that. We don't have to entertain that or talk to that. When you're being accused and condemned and judged, God will judge you. He has given us judgments in his word. We're to heed and believe those. But when those accusing voices come, whether it's from a person, your own head, we don't have to take that. We don't have to listen to that. 
It says, you'll condemn that. That's your heritage. Because God is the one who judges. Not man. How easy it is easy for us to feel condemned. It's so good, that last bit. Our standing with God does not rest upon our good performance or our faithfulness, but what Christ has accomplished on Calvary, because our righteousness is from him. That's your heritage, believer, righteousness from God. It's not your righteousness, it's his. No one can earn righteousness through the effort of the flesh by trying to be good or to do good. Therefore, our faults and our failures and our shortcomings, our sins, they don't disqualify us from God's righteousness because it's from God. It didn't come from you. Because we have been made righteous, we're called to live righteously. That's the connection. We should live righteously because he's made us righteous. It wouldn't do much good for Queen Esther to wear her royal apparel and then uh, be a prostitute on the side. No, she is the queen. She has a husband. She needs to be faithful to her, her king and her husband. And that's how we should be with God, faithful to him. So when we're convicted, when, we're re- when we receive bu- rebu- rebuke from the word or from other people, that we would take that to heart and we would repent. But when those accusations come and those demeaning things from the enemy, we don't have to give space for that. God's able to use your conscience, friends, family, his word, even our feelings to reveal our need to repent. And we must repent. When I got angry yesterday, I did repent. I apologized and just said, man, you know, thinking, why does this happen? It's like, well, my righteousness is from God. It's not from me. I'm not righteous in my flesh. In my flesh, there dwells no good thing. So praise God that my righteousness comes from him. It's not based upon my performance. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I want to close with this verse. If you want to turn there. Romans 1. 16 and 17. To place the challenge before you, will you live by faith in God? Will you live by faith in God? Not in yourself, but in Him. Not in others, in Him. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Job walked by faith. He trusted God despite loss and physical pain. Noah lived by faith when he built an ark out of wood on dry ground when it had never before rained or flooded. Abraham lived by faith by leaving his home. God said, go where I'm going to show you. Joseph lived by faith, by explaining Pharaoh's dreams. Jacob walked by faith. He went to Egypt when he heard his son wasn't dead. He thought he was dead. He had believed it for years. But when presented with those carts and the words, he said, I'm going to go and see my son before I die. Esther lived by faith when she fasted and prayed and sought the Lord and then put her life on the line, going before the king and pleading for the lives of her people. Jesus lived by faith 
when he went to the cross and laid down his life willingly as a sacrifice for sinners. Will you live by faith in God? Will you receive his comfort today? Let's thank him. Thank you, Lord, that you have wonderful things to to say to us, barren, hopeless, sinful, lost people, and that you have shown us the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have a heritage in you that is more precious than any money or gold or, or precious stones in this world because it's eternal and it comes from you. It's not corruptible. It can't be stolen or lost. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Thank you for your comforts. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. Lord, make us people who walk by faith and not by sight, who trust your word. And when we we see no fruit of our efforts, we, we see no way out of the situation that we would trust you and we'd believe in your word and we'd leave the timing to you, we'd leave the way to you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord, for the comforts you do supply and for the correction that you bring. Thank you for refining us, Lord. Thank you for the fiery trial, those those painful moments, those feelings that bring us low. We thank you for those, Lord, that show where our hearts are at and our great need. Lord, we give ourselves to you as you have given yourself wholly to us, and we praise you for your presence. We thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.